everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Janssens. Our guest today is Rex Salisbury, General Partner at Cambrian. Rex recently launched Cambrian, a solo GP fund, after three years at Andreessen Horowitz establishing their FinTech team. In his last appearance on the podcast, he talked about setting up the Cambrian FinTech community, formerly FinTech Devs and PMs Meetup. Cambrian is a U.S. fintech fund investing $500,000 non-lead checks in fintechs at the pre-seed and seed level. The Cambrian community allows fintech founders and operators to connect via their Slack channel and regular activities such as biannual founder matching. In today's episode, we talk about the evolution of fintech devs and PMs into the Cambrian community, Rex's investing philosophy, his fintech predictions for 2023, and much, much more. Hi, Rex, and welcome back to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Hey, thanks, Andrew. Glad to be here. Where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm calling in from the Presidio in San Francisco, which is where I call in from most every every day. Basically, I, I work from here and, and live here, too. Amazing. I'm sure there's a little less travel nowadays. Well, so, yeah, everyone's coming back to San Francisco. So, you know, there's even, even less uh, reason to be leaving nowadays. Makes sense. So we last interviewed you in December 2018. So for our listeners who might be a little less familiar... Can you give a brief overview of your career to date and what you've been working on more recently? Yeah, when you guys interviewed me in 2018 was actually right when I was committing to quit my current job and go full-time on Cambrian. Now, for those of you who don't know, Cambrian is a community for people in fintech that I started for people in San Francisco in around 2014. I had a day job as a software engineer. Uh, I was building a fully automated mortgage online pre-approval. This is 2014. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I want to talk to other people building really cool things in fintech. Let's try to get together engineers, product managers, and founders to talk about those cool things that they're building. And so I started doing monthly events in downtown San Francisco. First event had my team demoing what we were building a mortgage, the Plaid team uh, demoing their API, and then someone demoing an app they built on top of that. And then from there, the community just grew. Got to the point where we're doing monthly events in San Francisco and in New York. We're doing quarterly jobs fairs, biannual summits. We have like biannual co-founder matching, which we're still doing. But anyways, when I talked to you guys uh, in 2018 was when basically community got into a tipping point where I realized I was more excited about the ecosystem level work than I was about my day job as a software engineer, which I love, by the way. I love my day job. It was a great day job. I just like the ecosystem level stuff even more. And I've been pulled into investing and advising. And so my plan was to go full-time on the Cambrian, which was a community, and run it as kind of an events and media business, and also raise a fund in conjunction with that. And then shortly after that, actually, the Andreessen Horowitz team reached out to me, and they're like, hey, why don't you help us build out the fintech practice at A16Z instead? And so I kept Cambrian, the community, alive, um, but focused the vast majority of my efforts, obviously, on on working on helping build out the fintech practice uh, at Andreessen Horowitz. And I had a blast there for just over two years. Great team, you know, amazing brand, awesome time in the ecosystem. Got to learn from a whole bunch of really great um, other investors. But ultimately, I wanted to go and do my own thing. And so I kind of went back to, to basically... Now I am uh, basically where I was when I first talked with you guys, which is <laughs> I, I started my own thing. It's now Cambrian Ventures. So I still run the community. Uh, we don't really do as many in-person events anymore. COVID's just been kind of a drag. and. Getting large event space has been slower in San Francisco, but we still do have a newsletter. So we've got over 20,000 newsletter subscribers. I have a YouTube channel that I'm spending more time on now. I encourage you to check it out if you'd like to. We do interviews with founders from places like Wealthfront, Betterment, Credit Karma. Still do co biannual co-founder matching. But the big new thing is that I now run a fund. So that's Cambrian Ventures. It's just north of a $20 million fund. 
The fund itself is backed by some of the top entrepreneurs in fintech. So we have founders from SoFi, Betterment, Blend, Plaid, like, you know, some of the marquee names in, in, in financial service or in fintech. Um, and then we invest, and when I say we, I'm, it's also me, I'm a solo GP, um, invest in pre-seed and seed stage fintechs with US go-to-markets. Um, and so have done, we did our very first investment uh, in a company called OatFi uh, in January of 2022. And we have now done 13 investments uh, total, and we'll do, you know, another 15 or so out of this fund over the next uh, 12 plus months. Uh, most of them are still in stealth because they're all very, very early. Otherwise, I give call outs to all of them uh, as well. But that's kind of where I am right now. My goal is um, basically leverage my experience as a software engineer, my experience. I was formerly, uh, like maybe some of the people who are listening to this podcast, um, formerly an investment banker, uh, which learned a lot, did not like it. Um, so I quit my job, moved to the West Coast, became a software engineer. Um, so Basically leverage, yeah, the experience from time as a software engineer, as a banker, as an investor, as someone who's like marshaled and built networks within the fintech ecosystem to leverage those net networks to benefit the portfolio companies, right? And one of the big ways is like getting some of those founders who are backing my fund involved as investors or episodic advisors in the companies we invest in, but also just helping identify strategic partners, initial customers, initial hires, all that sort of stuff. And so that's why I love doing the kind of pre-seed and seed stages. I have this network that I've been cultivating and building for you know nearly a decade at this point that is just really well suited for helping early stage founders kind of discover things that exist within the fintech ecosystem they might not be aware of that then can help accelerate their go-to-market, their product development, their hiring, um, all that sort of stuff. And so it's a really fun, fun position. And I feel very fortunate to, to get to be doing what I'm doing. It's been a very busy five years since we spoke to you, clearly. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into the, the details on Cambrian very soon, but I'd love to bring you back to your early career because we've interviewed a number of investors who started investment banking and some of whom hated it. Yep. Um, I'm curious what stuck with you from your time at Merrill's real estate syndicated capital markets team. Yeah. So first, I think a lot of people end up in investment banking because there's a time when there was just a lot of jobs in investment banking, right? This isn't a perfect measure, but for... There's a time when like Ivy League graduates, like 40% of the graduating class went to work on, on Wall Street, which you kind of wonder if these are like institutions about lives of leadership and service and like, like why are they all just doing kind of the same thing that they didn't even know what it was when they were freshmen, but that's a separate thing. So anyways, what you learn when you're working for a large bank is you learn a lot of things. You learn like how do capital markets function, right? Um, how is credit decisioning made? How do large organizations function? So I was doing banking for publicly traded real estate companies. Uh, we were offering debt facilities for them, but also for some private equity funds. And so you learn about like the whole LP base, like who are the institutional investors backing these folks? Like I remember one day when someone's like, oh, Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is going to do a 1% allocation into US real estate. And you're like, oh my God, it's like a trillion dollar fund. 1% is 10 billion. Like that's a lot of money that's going to flow into an asset class where that's actually pretty meaningful. But then you also learn, this is the reason I kind of left, is you learn, I thought, like I studied economics undergrad, I thought it's like capitalism, or the big idea in economics is you want competitive markets, right? Because competitive markets drive down prices, create consumer surplus, all that sort of stuff. And since economics is like kind of synonymous with the study of capitalism and banking is kind of synonymous with capitalism, it's like, if you work in financial services, you're going to work in this thing that's about like competitive markets and transparency. And, and that's completely wrong because banking is actually the opposite of kind of competitive markets. It's deeply entrenched incumbents, 
And this comes from Matt Levine. They're kind of like socialist paradises run for the benefits of the employees where opacity is a feature and a bug because it's very hard to create risk-free returns, right? Like if you want to go out and you want to buy stocks in the public market and you want to outperform the market, good luck. That's hard. If you want to create some package and like stuff stuff inside of it and then pretend it's a risk-free reward, you can do that more easily than you can beat the market. And so everyone is incentivized to create these opaque structures with hidden fees that are kind of, you know, inefficient often to actually structure those things, right? If you're a bank uh, or if you work in an investment bank, you're structuring financial products. If that product is too transparent and too easy to structure, you can't charge very much money for it. And you also like can't, (laughs) there's like too much transparency. It's also too efficient. So no one's going to pay you like a bunch of money to do it. So for example, what I was doing at um, the bank was we were structuring, call it, $500 million credit facilities, which are basically 120-page credit agreements. And they kind of had like three material terms in them. It was really just addressing the pricing and like a few other things around some debt service coverage ratios. Um, So it's really only a few material commercial terms. And this is for a bank or for a bank, for a REIT that you've maybe had a decade plus banking relationship with being their treasury partner. Oh, by the way, they're public. So you can see all their financials anyways. And so like, how long does it take to negotiate basically three salient points and how many people does it involve? Well, it takes about three months and it takes about 10 people from each bank and there are about five banks in each syndicate and it takes about three or four lawyers. So you're talking about 60 people to change three terms in 90 days. And you're like, why the f- is this the way like it works? And me, and this is why I left banking. If you go back, and I think this is why a lot of people end up banking because they basically have this experience. They're like, look at all this opacity. And it's so frustrating because at first you're like, aha, I'm going to do it more efficiently. And they're like, wait, no, that's not, no one wants to do it more efficiently because that's how they get paid. But also like you look at the people who are 10 years older than you and they're miserable. And so you're like, well, I don't want to do this. Also like employment in the industry is shrinking. And then for me at the time, I'm watching things happening in Silicon Valley in financial services where people are starting to automate the low value, high volume transactions, right? So I'm doing $500 million debt facilities. Lending Club has this new like, legal structure around consumer unsecured credit that they're originating online. So we're talking, you know, $100, $400 loans that are like fully automated online. And you're like, oh, technology is going to eat its way up the stack in financial services from low value, high volume transactions into basically all parts of the ecosystem. And that is playing out. And that's why I'm really excited about financial services. Some, some people will be like, oh, like, isn't fintech over? And you're like, you have no idea how little like digital has penetrated financial services. There are whole other sectors like commercial real estate, insurance. There's also just new categories and ways of delivering financial services. Vertical software, right? Where you have embedded financial services instead of having to go to a bank branch. So like basically digital hasn't come, but it's going to come. So when I was back banking, you could kind of see some of the ways it was starting. And you're like, I just don't want to do this work anymore. So I quit my job. I moved cross country, became a software engineer. And my like clever thinking at the time was, you know, Low value, high volume is where it starts. Consumer unsecured credit. So that was kind of lending club and their competitors. That's like, okay, SoFi had happened. Uh, that was student loans. What's the next one? Mortgages, right? It's the next up. It's a huge market. It's even more broken. Like, great, let's do something there. And so uh, I joined a company called Cindio as a backend engineer. Um, my CTO is one of the co-founders of uh, SoFi. And I was like, perfect. This is like, we're going to do it, right? We're going to like do it. And then, then it turns out like mortgages is really fucking hard, <laughs> right? 
because they're actually kind of five businesses you have to do. Like that's a whole nother story. So it didn't work out, but that kind of closes the loop on where we talked about before, which is building that technology in mortgage was super fun, super interesting, super rewarding. I remember when like the first loan application actually went through our system. Um, and I think maybe the first one was like a real person. And then the second one was like some scraping robot thing. And we had to like <laughs> then make a, a little patch. Um, and that was just super cool. And I was like, I want to talk to other people building these kinds of things. And so that, that ties us back into you know, the whole thing that led me on to now doing, doing what I'm doing. And before we get that, I'd love to ask, would you recommend maybe other frustrated uh, IB grads interested in fintech follow your path and learn to code before entering the space? Or do you think that's not necessarily necessary at this time? I think, I think it's less necessary than it used to be. There was a time when financial services or the companies that were getting started were kind of less integrated. They're still definitely integrated, but like less deeply enmeshed into kind of more traditional stayed parts of the financial services market. Um, and there's just a huge shortage of engineers. And so like engineering was actually the easiest way to just do any kind of fintech. But now a lot of companies, they're not just tech companies. I don't mean this in a uh, derisive way. I mean this in kind of a complimentary way because as companies, as tech permeates the real economy, companies start to look more like other companies but have this kind of technological backbone that's still incredibly important. But it means you need really strong sales leaders, customer success leaders. You need really strong like general counsels, like ops. You need people who are like good at solutions engineering for trying to figure out how do you take something like embedded lending and actually, it's almost like a consultant pitch, right? How do you actually get the customer to want to embed that thing? And so it's almost like a consultant workflow, which everyone hated consultants in the Valley at a certain point in time. But I actually think now for certain kinds of company, the consultant skill set is actually quite valuable. And a lot of people at certain kinds of fintech companies have realized that. So I still think it's an amazing way to get into technology. It's super fun. It's super rewarding. But it no longer has to be the, the only thing. And I still think this is maybe a little bit non-obvious or controversial that the best way early in your career to get into anything is to move to a geography where a lot of that happens. Right. And so the most important thing for me was actually, I think, less that I learned to code and more that I quit my job, moved cross country and started living in the Bay Area before I had a job. And that allowed me to just build networks and relationships with people who are super like my house was like a four minute walk from Stripe's headquarters in the mission. Right. Like the guy three doors down was building Kama AI, which is like a self-driving car competitor that like Elon tried to hire at one point. It's just like you were in it. Whereas when I was in the East Coast, I wasn't. If you're later in your career and you already have a network, you already know who to call to get access to other parts of the network. When you're very young, you don't have a network. And so when you're young, geography matters so much more because you're trying to build a network and you're trying to get it started. And so just because people are saying things like my former employer, like, we're moving to the cloud. Like, there's a whole group of people for whom that's totally reasonable. Move to the cloud, work from anywhere. That's fine. If you're like super young and hungry, like basically the answer is if you're in the US, move to San Francisco or New York. Or if you have some good reasons, some other ecosystems that have good density um, for certain kinds of things as well. And that moves us perfectly onto talking about Cambrian. So I would love to hear a bit about how the Cambrian community has evolved from an idea suggested by one of your friends on a hike 
up Mount Tam to quote, a network of networks with 1500 plus fintech founders, of whom I think many are now LPs and Canberra Inventures. That's right. I forgot I told you that. Yeah, I was walking with a friend who was actually working in marketing at NerdWallet at the time. I've been going to some... Uh, these are all interesting, but I think there's kind of this gap to have like a more nuanced, deeper conversation about how you actually build some of this stuff. So that was like uh, the actual kind of founding moment in some sense. I think communities like lots of things evolve over time and Cambrian is still evolving and has certainly changed a lot from how when I first started it um, and will continue to. So when I first started it, what we mostly did were like decent size events on a monthly cadence, mostly in San Francisco, but also in New York, like 150 people, up to 150 people coming together on a monthly basis where we'd have one, two or three founders or like kind of heads of products talk about something they built in the last six months. Um, and then there'd be kind of, you know, networking before networking after. Uh, and we also like out of that grew kind of the newsletter. Then the pandemic happened. I went and worked at A16Z. By the way, I felt very fortunate from a timing perspective because like I was, before I decided to join A16Z, I was planning to run an events business and start a fund. And basically the cash flow of the events was just been dead. <laughs> so that worked out um, well, but it did mean that I stopped doing in-person events for for Cambrian. And I haven't really brought that back. Now what the community more is, is just content and stuff that I disseminate through the newsletter and through the YouTube channel. And then the biggest and most active component right now is actually a Slack community I have. We've got about 1,700 plus fintech founders in it. Um, and so that's mostly, you know, with 1,700 founders, as you can imagine, most of them are, are early stage. People even who are maybe ideating, thinking about starting something. And it's a great place to go and, you know, exchange ideas with like-minded people, but also get into the nitty-gritty of like, hey, I'm looking at bass providers. I want to do this specific thing. Who's worked with this specific partner? Will they be a good partner? Like that's a classic kind of question. Or like, hey, I'm staying up my company. I need all of these things like from a compliance standpoint. Like who can I talk to who's a consultant that does this kind of stuff? Um, I need a marketing website. Who should I use for my marketing website? So there's just a lot of kind of the nitty-gritty exchange. And that's a great group. And then I also do biannually uh, co-founder matching. By the way, you can find all this stuff. You just go to the website. It's cambrianhq.com. Uh, and all the sublinks are very easy to find. Um, co-founder matching is basically me just saying, hey, who's looking for a co-founder? You kind of fill out a form and then you get access to the other folks who are, who are looking. Um, and we just kicked that off a few weeks ago. And I think we've got 230 folks who have um, participated so far. And I know... It's very hard for me to track, but I at least know of one company that's being formed <laughs> as a result of that, which probably means there are probably about seven or eight um, co-founder matches or, or maybe more. But regardless, you know, hundreds of meetings, lots of great exchanging of, of ideas and networking. Um, and so that's, that's the main apparatus now is that Slack community plus some of the kind of content I do. And maybe at some point I'll start figuring out the, um, you know, more of the in-person stuff. And then I'll also say I do a lot just with the kind of closest core component of the community, which is the 20 plus founders who are LPs in the fund. And that now, I guess we are now 20 plus founders who are founders of portfolio companies, right? And so bringing together those people in person, generally in San Francisco, because that's where I'm based, although I'll start doing more of it in probably New York as well, and maybe some other, other areas more episodically, uh, will be another big part of what, what I'm doing. I have my own theories relating to evolution and not the country of Wales, but I'd love to hear you explain the origins of the name Cambrian, which is a little punchier than the former name of fintech devs and PM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, the old name was like unwieldy but descriptive, whereas the, I, I like this name. So Cambrian uh, is a geological era, like 542 million years ago, when you can see complex life start to emerge in the fossil record. Um, and it's called the Cambrian explosion because you basically go from seeing like a few kinds of organisms to many kinds of organisms. And so it's like, why did this happen? Well, there are kind of these building blocks within biology that emerge that could be recombined in new ways to create new kinds of life. Um, and so there's this explosions of diversity of the kinds of life you see. And I think the analogy um, used in the tech ecosystem or in the fintech ecosystem is that you now have all these primitives um, that can be combined to build new things faster and better than ever before. So to back up like an example of what this looks like, if you look at one of arguably the first neobanks, Simple, which a lot of people are probably familiar with, it took them over two years to find their first banking partner to launch a prepaid card to function as a debit card. And that didn't work out. So they had to find another bank. After this Herculean effort of finding the the partner getting it stood up, I think six months later, they realized it wouldn't work and they had to go and do it differently again. Today, if you're a fintech founder and you want a banking partner, your challenge is not finding and getting one, although it could be if you're based in Canada or Latin America or somewhere else. But in the US, your challenge is there are now 20 banking as a service platforms. There are now maybe 60 banks who are interested in doing partnerships. How do you decide which one to work with and why? So that, that's a challenge, but the, the great thing is you now have like this building block, right? Like this layer of financial services you have access to. And then, so there's kind of the technology side of it that makes it really exciting for like, why now? And why is FinTech still a thing? And then there's also, I think like the biggest thing that seems obvious once you say it, but I don't think people say it enough, is just the people side of things, right? So let's, let's go back to 2009. You're John Stein, you're building Betterment. Uh, so first you have the question we talked about before, like, who do you, like, how do you offer brokerage? Like, who do you build on top of? And it turns out the answer is Apex, and Apex was a relatively new thing at the time. But then there's the other question of like, okay, like, who do you hire? And it's like, well, I would like to hire someone who's, you know, helped build a robo-advisor before. And you're like, there is no one. <laughs> that, that category isn't a category for another like four or five years, right? And so one of his very, his co-founder, I think, ended up being someone he like played poker with. And then like the first engine, like it's just all kind of, you know, there isn't this huge pool of talent. You fast forward 10 years, there are now, you can use whatever list you want. You take like the top 250 fintechs, they're like 25,000 to like 100,000 employees of those companies. So there's this deep pool of talent. And if you think about, you know, like the people who have worked at Betterment for 10 years, well, first of all, maybe they haven't worked there for 10 years. Maybe they worked there for three, four years and they did something else and then they did something else. And now they've had like two or three tours of duty. They understand various aspects of how financial services work. If they came from Betterment, maybe they're particularly deep in like wealth tech, right? But they've also exchanged ideas with other people. They've built up networks. Now, when they go out and they want to start a company, they're like, here's the infrastructure I need. Here are the people I should hire from. Um, and then here, oh, by the way, I also know a bunch of investors who like invest in fintech. Whereas 2009, like how many fintech investors there are? Like, I think, I don't know if Ribbit had even been started in 2009. QED was uh, a family office, was basically just Nigel uh, and Frank doing non-lead kind of small checks. So like the whole ecosystem is just so much better positioned to actually be able to build companies than it was 10 years ago. 
And then, so that's a kind of like the Cambrian building blocks, right? These little bits that you can combine, although they're not little bits, right? Like it's, it's like a lot of infrastructure, a lot of great people, a lot of capital. And then in addition to all of that, you look at the market opportunity and you're like, digital penetration and financial services is, is tiny, right? Like sure you have, you know, maybe just talk about some of the consumer stuff, like robo-advisory services are still like way under a trillion in AUM. And there's actually 99 trillion in assets in the RIA channel where that tech stack really hasn't been touched. Um, banking, sure, like Chime and some other folks have looked to go after kind of the underbank people who are almost intentionally feed out of the banking system uh, after the Durban Amendment, because it basically became hard for banks to profitably bank these customers on their legacy infrastructure. And so folks kind of went after that core. But then if you look at everyone who's mass affluent or above, they're still all running on the, the legacy five banks, right? And so that hasn't really changed. And then you get into all other categories like vertical SaaS or infrastructure to embed financial services into vertical SaaS or insurance or commercial real estate. And you're like, oh, like more people, um, better infrastructure, better kind of insights in the ecosystem. And the market is literally as big or bigger than it ever has been. And so that's why I'm like, look, fintech is really like quite literally just getting started. Um, and that's why I'm excited to get to back like all these super interesting people who are way smarter on these things than I am to go out and, and tackle some of these things. Amazing. That leads me on some questions I have about Cambrian. So Cambrian is US focused, pre-seed, seed stage fund, of which are the sole GP. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about as to why you ended up on this particular investment vehicle and stage, especially coming from a multi-stage, multinational investor like A16Z. Yeah. So this is maybe a little bit thinking through like venture fund strategy that maybe a lot of people don't think about because you're, you're more thinking about just the um, kind of company opportunities and that sort of thing. But um, one of the big things I decided early on was I, you know, I could have raised like 100 million or more fund. And at that point, you're a lead investor. And what that means is you're very competitive with everyone at A16Z. So if I want to invest in a company, I now have to beat A16Z, QED, Ribbit, all these other folks in order for the right to like write a $2 million check. I think I can be helpful, but like, let's be honest, I'm not going to, I'm not going to win over um, the, those uh, names almost all of the time. And then if you think about like the value that I bring to the table, it's a lot of the networks that I bring. And if I raise a smaller fund where I write a non-lead check, then I can collaborate, yes, with those in other lead investors. Um, but I can also, that keeps me kind of more ingrained and enmeshed in the networks in financial services or in the fintech ecosystem so that I can be actually more supportive to my companies in some ways as a non-lead investor than I could if I was a lead investor, right? It also lets me have a slightly bigger portfolio. And then like why US only? I think there are great opportunities around the world. I am one person. Um, I also think the US is a great market. It's a large unified market with good rule of law, which is very hard to say about almost anywhere else uh, with developed capital markets, deep pools of talent, all that. So like one, it's just a really good market. But two, everything I do is network driven. And if I'm getting on planes to fly to Joburg or Dubai or Singapore, that's a huge cost of time. And each of those ecosystems has their own networks that don't necessarily reinforce the network that I'm building within the US. And so it's, it's a time uh, and network strategy as much as it is like, I think this is a good market strategy. Right. And uh, I know speaking to Tashi, you said, my goal is to be the most helpful investor through the first 24 months of a company's history. So can you expand on what you mean by that? 
Yeah, so, so my goal is like to help you navigate and understand the fintech network and maybe turn over stones and discover things that can help accelerate your company's growth that you probably would have discovered on your own anyways, but I can just help you discover those things maybe a little bit faster, right? So like, let's say that you're building an embedded fintech company and you want to, um, your, your customers are vertical, saw, vertical SaaS companies, right? Well, I've seen 50 pitches for vertical SaaS companies and I can refer all of them to you as customers. So I also know an incubator who has incubated 105 vertical SaaS companies. I can connect you with their head of BD who is now, so like all of a sudden you're accelerated on the direct customer as well as the customer partnership front, right? Let's say that you're trying to build out your banking stack and you need to figure out who your banking partner can be. I can post a question in like the general of the Slack community, uh, as could you, and be like, hey, who's built something recently with these partners for this specific use case? Because there is no place you can go to get the current like, which BAS platforms are onboarding customers that have these features and are still good to work with, right? That, the only way you can understand these things is by talking to another entrepreneur who's probably built something similar-ish in the last six months. So it's helping you understand, we talked about like kind of the go-to-market, we helped you understand like a little bit of the, the infrastructure. And then there's kind of the talent piece. Like I do things around co-founder matching and just constantly talking to interesting folks in the ecosystem. And so there's all that that I can do to help kind of accelerate the company development early on. And then the question maybe would be like, why 24 months? Well, after 24 months, um, ideally, if things are going well, you should have built your product, launched it, got your first customers live. You're getting through your Series A. You've hired a bit of an executive team and you have some idea or maybe a very clear idea of product market fit. And now you kind of, you are more of an expert in the networks that are relevant to you than I am, right? And so I can still like, periodically discover things or maybe help facilitate introductions that you're asking for. But, you know, 18 months ago, it would have been an introduction that I was suggesting to you. Whereas now you're like, hey, can you help me talk to this very specific person? And so that's why, like, for the first 24 months, I think I'm most helpful. And that also works with my strategy in terms of being a non-lead investor, having a portfolio of companies that, you know, I can support very well for those first 24 months. But since I'm not taking a board seat, it's not like, I'm on the board of a 30 companies and literally have no time for new investments. Um, and so that's kind of how the whole, whole strategy ties together. Makes perfect sense. And um, I know you've talked elsewhere as well about the rise of the solo GP. So I'm curious who are some solo operators, either in FinTech or outside, that you really admire? So, so solo GPs uh, specifically? Yeah. Oh, in, I mean, investors more generally, but would be curious about solo GPs as well. Yeah. The great news is I think there are a lot of great investors in the ecosystem. Before we talk about specific solo GPs, I just want to say like, A, they're, they're the brands that everyone know, knows, like my old team, A16Z, QED, Ribbit, et cetera. Those are all great firms that are either fintech specific or have very dedicated fintech practices. But there are other firms that are even better for specific things. There are folks who specialize in insurance or in prop tech. Right. And so if you're building in certain areas, or maybe you're building at the intersection of fintech and something else, like health tech would be, I think, a great example where when I do a fintech X health tech investment, I usually want to find a lead or another, um, you know, co lead that is deep on healthcare because healthcare go to markets are very different. And so there are a lot of different kinds of folks with an investor ecosystem to draw on. One of the best class and kind of, uh, you know, I did a, 
conversation with Frank Montan, one of the founders of QED. He wrote a piece called The Three-Body Problem about like what are the stable points in the venture ecosystem, the kinds of venture firms that will exist uh, in the future because we're undergoing a lot of changes as an industry. And he says that like one of those, and I agree, one of those stable points is to be a solo GP where it's someone who has just deep domain expertise in the area that you're operating in. And then they're usually a non-lead, but dollar for dollar will probably provide the most value for you of anyone on your cap table because they might have built something very similar to like the thing you want to do, right? And so they can just be incredibly helpful with that. And so I know a lot of different um, solo GPs. I mean, two that I talk to a lot or, or three. Um, one is Nicole Wishoff, who's done a bunch of stuff in and around uh, fintech. She used to be at Built. She helped build one, which is a neobank, and now she runs her own firm. There's also uh, Hayden Simmons, who does a bunch of amazing work. I guess he does have another partner now. Um, Rallycap, um, doing kind of emerging markets around the world. There's Nick Milanovic, who we've already had on this program, who has his own network through the whole This Week in FinTech ecosystem. But then there are other folks who you know are running very small funds uh, on the side that might be super relevant to you, depending on what exactly you're doing. So like Ahmad at Mercury uh, runs a small fund. There's you're building in the embedded fintech ecosystem. There's Samrat from Gusto who has a small fund and he does a lot of investing. So there, there's kind of those three folks that I mentioned that I've talked to quite often because they're kind of more broad fintech coverage. But then there's some other folks too who have very specific domain expertise that can be super, super valuable. Amazing. I appreciate your, uh, your opinions there. And um, you know, we've already talked about a little bit about your time at Syndio and how kind of building up a mortgage-backed fintech was your start. How do you think starting as a builder or operator affected your approach to investing in fintech? Um, I don't know. I feel like I know a lot of, especially going through A16Z, where they like to hire people who have been builder shoppers. I know a lot of people <laughs> in venture now who've done that, where that hasn't always, always been the case. I think one is understanding what the, the founder journey looks like and the fact that companies are kind of always on fire on the inside. Um, and this is actually another way where being a non-lead investor, I create a different kind of value maybe than your lead investor. If you have a really hard conversation you want to have with your lead investor, like you probably should be transparent with them. But if you want to like preview that conversation with me, <laughs> you can do that, right? Um, and then because I've been an operator, like I understand like, oh, you know, like things don't go as well as you want. Like maybe fraud is a huge problem. Maybe like key employees are leaving. Maybe a big customer is about to churn. Like how do you think about how to address that? And then not just address it, but then also communicate communicate it to all the relevant stakeholders. I can be helpful in thinking about lots of the communication pathways, but in particular, I can be helpful in helping you strategize about what your communication should look like with your investors, right? You, you as the CEO are probably more in charge of communication with your customers and communication with your employees. But in terms of how to just frame the conversations for your investors, I can be helpful um, with that as well. Perfect. So going back to something you've you've kind of tweeted about recently, um, we recently had KOTU's Michael Gilroy on the pod. Great guy. And I know you've referred to the recently proposed rule of 200 as kind of a good way to think about the balance of revenue quality and revenue growth. So what do you think makes this particular approach helpful when assessing maybe higher and lows multiple companies? Yeah. So I, I love the work they've done. I love they've done something there. I'm not going to say that's like the definitive answer to all these things, but it's a great starting point for a conversation. And so in the problem with revenue and financial services is it's very complicated. And therefore, it can be very hard to compare one kind of revenue to another kind of revenue, right? 
If you're an 80% gross margin SaaS business with one-year contracts, that's pretty easy. And that's to understand. And that's why investors really, really love it, right? If you are a fintech business, you might have payment processing, lending, affiliate revenue. And so you're growing maybe four or five X year over year, but you have like this very confusing composition of your revenue. And so how should you, as an investor, weight that revenue for that complicated business relative to like a traditional SaaS business? And it used to be <laughs> that the way people did it is like, oh, revenue is equal. Like, we'll just apply a multiple. And that was a bad idea, right? And so if you look at fintech, fintech multiples were basically the same or better than like multiples in other areas. Uh, and then we had the correction and fintech multiples became worse than other areas, right? And so what the CO2 um, formula rule of 200 is trying to do is take into account, and I won't get into the specifics because you can read the specifics if you want to, the composition of the revenue and its quality, like its gross margin profile being one of the things, in addition to the kind of level of growth and absolute level. And then I'll say like in the market right now, like the most common way this is manifesting itself is that a lot of venture folks just like don't want to touch anything that has lending associated revenue. And that's because a lot of consumer fintech companies, even if they don't have a strong lending revenue component, but especially if they do like a lending club or someone, it can just go away over time, right? Because lending can be very competitive and th th you can have credit losses, like all this sort of stuff. But, and so people have kind of like soured on fintech business models. Um, but I think it's wrong to sour on it because like ultimately more money is a better thing, even if it's not all at a high gross margin profile, at least more money is not definitively bad just because it has a lower gross margin profile would be a better way of articulating it. And so I think we're just kind of learning. And public now that we have more fintech companies in the public markets, right? public markets are good at digesting these, kind of redefining the buckets, redefining how to think about the multiples. And so we're just in that learning phase of how do you appropriately weight the very complicated revenue streams that exist within financial services. And this has always been the case, right? Like banks trade very differently and have a very different set of core metrics than do other kinds of companies. Returns on assets, return on equity, expense ratios, credit losses, loan loss reserves, like all these things are things that are, of course, very specific to banks. And so that'll be true for as we kind of define some of the categories. But the one thing that's hard is <laughs> a lot of the companies that I'm investing in will probably, well, ideally become category-defining companies, which will probably mean they have an interesting business model that probably doesn't fall into some bucket. And so then we'll have to like relearn all of this again in another eight years for another set of, of really interesting uh, companies. Yeah, the endless cycle of disruptive investing. Yeah. Um, so you recently published a video with your six fintech predictions for 2023. And to any of our listeners, definitely go check it out on Cambrian's YouTube. So now that we're halfway through February 2023, uh, do you have any updates or revisions to those predictions? No, I will say that the funny thing about VCs making predictions is actually, and I do this too, um, you never actually make predictions. You just state things about the current world that maybe aren't as broadly circulated. And maybe they're like already circulated and kind of aware of within like the venture or the fintech ecosystem. But I think sometimes they can still, that doesn't make them necessarily unuseful because even just understanding the current state can be hard to do when there's such a reporting lag in terms of a lot of the activity that's going on. So, I mean, my biggest, biggest one is really one of the ones I always harp on. And so this was just another opportunity to harp on that same idea, which is, that there is more talent in the ecosystem than ever before. 
And so the prediction was that there'll be basically more companies started by repeat fintech founders in 2023 than in any other year. Um, and that's just because they're more repeat founders than there used to be. But like, that's important to understand, right? Um, and then the second one is kind of very related to that, um, but it has to do with all the layoffs going on later stage. And that's if, if you are starting a company, maybe you're a repeat founder, maybe not, you're actually going to have an easier time hiring at the pre-seed and seed than you ever were in probably the last 10 years, right? 10 years ago, the job market for software engineers maybe wasn't as competitive, but the number of kind of tech-native software engineers was super, super low. The biggest pools of tech talent, or at least software engineers, were actually inside of financial services, but they didn't necessarily make great pre-seed employees, right? Now you've got this huge pool of talent of people who have probably at some point in their career been at at least a mid-sized company as it's gone through growth and had a lot of ownership of the kinds of things they're building and how to build it. So that's like a much better pool. The problem was there was a time when everyone was fishing in that pool. It was Amazon, Facebook, Google, Netflix, um, and then all the growth stage companies that were doubling headcount year over year. Now, all of those people have done layoffs um, and the employees who are still there, a lot of them, their morale is impacted. They might be underwater on their options. So you not only have like a larger pool of kind of active candidates to pull from, you could potentially poach, right? So like I have companies that's been out of other companies and they'd be like, man, I could never pull out like this person from this company. And now they're like, well, maybe I could. <laughs> so, and that just goes back to like, why is now an exciting time for FinTech? There, there's great founder talent and there's great availability of general talent. And so that's like, like one of the most important ingredients um, for company success. Perfect. And I might take a slight pivot here. Um, I love to dive into our guests' online presence and your big presence on FinTech Twitter, on which I'm chronically online, unfortunately. Um, so Buzz, I'd love to hear a bit more about your views on kind of NIMBYism and housing, which you've been very vocal over the years. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I used to be way more involved in like the, the YIMBY stuff in San Francisco. Um, and then I just got so frustrated because it's just such a hard problem. So first, let's frame the problem of um, housing in America. And this is, to some extent, a, a global phenomenon. The U.S. does not have enough housing. It is a huge, huge problem. The reason it's a problem is it's like the largest expense in most people's life. Um, and what's even worse about that is the most expensive housing are in the most productive regions in the country. If you look at the history of American growth or even just economic growth globally, it is usually individuals moving from one geography to another geography because they're pursuing economic opportunity, right? And you can see this with you know, the settlement of America that has its own issues, right? But people were moving from Europe, which was land scarce, to the States, which was land rich uh, and had like different institutions that were arguably much better than like the monarchical institutions, right? So people were moving from an unproductive place to a productive place. You go inside of the United States. For a long time, the South grew a lot more slowly than the North. And so there was a great migration, people moving from the South to the North. And then like post-World War, there is actually a huge move from the East to the West as California became a booming economy. So basically for hundreds of years, people have moved from low productivity areas to high productivity areas. That changed in about 1990 when Americans started moving from high productivity areas to low productivity areas because of the cost of living. The biggest driver of that cost of living is housing. 
And so what does that look like? Everyone knows San Francisco is expensive. What I don't think they appreciate is the extent to which expensive housing in highly productive regions has an incredible drag on overall economic growth. So the Center for Housing at Berkeley, for example, has a great paper. It's, I'm going to mispronounce his name. Chong Say, I think is how you say it. And he basically said, if five cities in the U.S. had more accommodative housing policies from like 1960 until 2020, GDP today would be 50% higher than it is, right? So what is GDP in the U.S.? It's like 20 trillion or something. So that's $10 trillion. You, you, can, you can have universal health care. You could fight five wars around the globe all at the same time. That'd be a bad idea, but you could, you could fund it. You know? like th- that's just such a huge sinkhole. And it's basically because we have made it very, very hard to build housing in the most productive areas of the country. The, the good news or bad news is like markets do try to work around you know, constrained resources. And so the whole move to remote work is basically capitalism at work saying, look, there's this scarce resources that we've really screwed up as a society where we won't produce housing. So now we're going to try and like allow people to work in more flexible rain, like means. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing, right? It would be better if you still had more housing. Um, but it is good that there are at least ways now to maybe route around that problem, which is just such a deep fundamental problem. And I'll say one more thing. The narrative I hate in this country is that housing is a great way to build wealth. It is the wrong narrative. It is such a bad narrative because you do not want consumption assets to be a vehicle for wealth creation, right? You want things you consume to become less expensive over time. If you are poor or just a renter, you understand this. You do not want your rent to go up. That is bad. You want your rent to go down. You want the quality of your house to go up and you want the cost of your house to go down. Most Americans own their homes, so they're in this weird superposition where they both want to be able to buy cheaper houses, but they want the price of their own house to go up because that's where all of their wealth is. And that means that people don't want to see building because they, they have this perception that it can actually decrease. Well, first of all, it changes the nature of their neighborhoods. So that's probably the biggest thing. But then there's this idea that like, oh, that could erode your wealth. And the way to build wealth is to buy this consumption asset. So I, I think we should basically stop treating it as a way to try and build wealth because housing cannot be a vehicle for wealth creation via appreciation and affordable, right? And you've got the famous like graph of Bobble's cost curve, which shows all these lines going up into, well, it shows most of the lines going down, TVs, cars, like all this other stuff. And then it shows two services industries going up, which are healthcare uh, and education. And then it shows housing also going up. Housing is still a lot of services because it's construction, et cetera. But a lot of that is not related at all to the cost of labor and is instead related to the cost of land, the cost of permitting, the uncertainty around permitting. And so it's something that we basically decided as a society to artificially make more expensive. And it's literally cost us $10 trillion every year, right? So it's like a big, so that's probably a little bit longer on the housing front than one. Good news, San Francisco just committed to building 82,000 units over the next Eight years, I think it is, which would be 10,000 units a year, up from an average of around 3,000 units a year. Um, whether we do that or not, I don't know. I'm not that optimistic, uh, but I would love to see it happen. And this, this is why we love to get our guests on their passion points. And yeah, I, I think you've quoted Emily Badger of the New York Times and said, the fundamental tension is that Americans want housing to be both affordable and a good investment, which I think that's a good summary of, uh, of what we just yeah. talked about there. <laughs> yeah. This does uh, show up in fintech pitches a lot of time. People are like, 
not enough people own houses and they needed to build wealth. And it's, you're not necessarily wrong, but it's framed as like, this is solving a social problem. And you're like, maybe that's solving a business problem and a user need, but it's actually making the social problem worse. So uh, whenever I see that I, in a pitch, I'm kind of like, eh, you know. Perfect. And uh, rounding up to come to the end of our interview, um, what are some hard-earned lessons that you'd like to share with other investors who might be earlier along in their journey? Uh, with other investors? Um, I, I do think the main thing is just building out great networks of people you really like and being in rich geographies. Probably one of the most valuable things I've always done is just talk to other people who are doing the kinds of things that I'm doing. And if you're a new investor, the best thing is to basically just go and try and talk to the other new investors who have just joined as well. And you can do that. You can basically go out for the kind of 10 firms that are like you, see who's joined in the last six months. They probably also want to talk to people. And then you build up this great cohort. You can exchange learnings. And then you guys will all age through the the ecosystem uh, together. So conversely, if you want to get into investing, it's basically the same thing. You find the people who have recently joined firms who are maybe focused on areas you're interested in, and then you're just mutually helpful to each other. Perfect. Um, we've recently taken to asking our guests. So uh, do you have any FinTech hot takes that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, never better time to start a company. It's a good one. That's it. That's it. Um, Self-serving, but a good one. <laughs> uh, and finally, rounding out to the end of the interview, um, outside of all the work that you do at Cambrian, um, how do you like to spend your time? Uh, I've got two kids. So I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. We live in the Presidio, which if you don't know it, the Presidio is a 1,600-acre park uh, within the city limits of San Francisco. And so I have this incredibly fortunate life where I get to be in this amazing dynamic city, um, but I can watch hawks eat gophers out of my window. And my main issue is um, when the coyotes get too aggressive. Um, so we spend a lot of time just walking, going for walks, hikes. We go swimming down at Chrissy Field, which it's very cold if you're wondering. Um, but we wear the kids wear wetsuits. Great thing about cold water is that uh, beaches are never busy. So if you want to go down there with your kids and put them in wetsuits, you like have a place to yourself. Amazing, and it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the podcast again, Rex. So um, to you and all the founders at Cambrian, we wish you the best of luck, and we hope to have you on again soon. Thanks so much, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you love our show, please write a review or engage with us on social media. We greatly appreciate your support and it helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you'll be able to access interviews, articles, and much more analyzing all aspects of the FinTech industry. As always, a very special thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. Until next time, your host, Andrew Janssens.